you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. I am uh, blessed not only to celebrate Lori on Valentine's Day, but also today, because it is her birthday today. Um, so, <laughs> gets worse. Going out on, on a limb uh, here here this morning. So it's her birthday, and you know, inspired by God's word, I will say, I decided to give you one of your birthday presents, and that's why you know I could not um, you know say yes to your request of not saying anything. So I have decided, or I decided that I would write you a poem, and I would read it for everyone to hear about you. So I, I have it like right here. It says. Happy birthday, Lori. And um, so this is for her ears, you know, only. Normally I wouldn't even read it out loud, so I'm going to make you all suffer through this. Um, but she'll probably be suffering the most. Um, so <laughs> I titled this poem, Your Love. Your love. Your love is like the sunshine that showers me with warmth. It melts away my coldness and softens up my heart. Your love. Your love is like the mountains that call me deep inside. It takes me to to a higher place to see and rest and fly. Your love. Your love is like good music that makes me want to dance. It moves me into smiling and cheers me up to laugh. Your love. Your love is like hot coffee. That wakes me up to live. I'll take it in the morning or any time of day. Your love. Your love is like God's love that never goes away. I never have to earn it. And I'll treasure it all of my days. Your love. Happy birthday, honey. Okay, so where do we go from there? Well, we go to God's poetry. <laughs> because he really gets it going here in chapter 7 with some, some illustrations about what uh, his people's love is like. And uh, so we're going to look at, at uh, these po- the, his poetry in light of our love and what our love is like and see how the, the Holy Spirit might change us to turn these images that he uses into something beautiful instead of something ugly. So let's pray that God would help us see and do in Jesus name. Father, we thank you for this word today. Thank you for this amazing book, Hosea. It has been just surprising at how it speaks to our hearts and uh, it helps us to to know, Lord, and appreciate um, just how much you really love us. And so we pray that uh, as a result of just listening to it today and sitting under it um, that we would walk away uh, knowing how to love you better because of how you've loved us. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so then we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 11, and read through chapter 7, verse 7 to get started. And in there, God tells his people that their love is like an oven. Love is like an oven. So, verse 11, chapter 6. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. All right, so God started a new poem here. And he is beginning with a status update of what's going on in the in the uh, in the nations, Judah and and Israel. I thought about saying that you know God is giving the State of the Union address to His people, but I thought that might conjure up some bad things in your mind. So I decided not to do it, although I think I just did. <clears throat> so anyway, he talks to both of them. He's saying, "Look, I want to heal you, but I can't do it. I, I, I can't. Uh, you're just continuing the same old sins." So instead of restoration and healing, you're looking forward to a harvest of punishment because of what you're doing. And then he mentions what they're doing. But when he does that, he's not really pointing to one particular sin or another. He's sort of saying, hey, this is is the way of your life now. This is what's going on. You're lying. You're stealing. You're murdering. All of this has become the norm in your society. And he says, and they don't even think that I'm watching, that, that I see, and that I remember everything that's going on. And then comes the pictures in in verses uh, 3 to 7. So it's kind of difficult to make sense of what God's talking about here um, as he begins to describe some political problems that were going on with the kings and the princes and and all of that. Um, So to the original readers, I I believe they would have known exactly what God was sort of pointing to. So for us, we have to kind of guess a little bit. But most likely, God is describing the political turmoil that happened over this 30-year time span in Israel over the throne of Israel. Okay, so from 753 B.C. to 722, which was then the fall of Israel, there were six kings in 30 years. So they were Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah, and Hosea. So those were your six kings. And only one of those guys died in his bed. Four of them were assassinated. And so if you think about that, you can imagine the plotting and the planning that was going on behind the scenes to uh, take over the throne of Israel. And so these people are called adulterers in verse 4 because of their lust, their lust for power. And then comes the picture. Uh, They are like a hot oven. Uh, And he says, the baker ceases to stir the fire while he's kneading the bread. And, and letting it leaven, letting it, letting it rise. 
Um, and so that, that, that was, you know, uh, a good thing to, to, to do, that the baker ceases that. So that verse 6 picks it up and it says, with hearts like an oven, it's like they have this blazing intrigue. Um, and, 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 it's, and their anger is going all night long. So all night long, the, the oven of their hearts has just got this even energy and they're, they're working and they're plotting and they're scheming. And then come morning, the fire breaks out. And verse 7 tells what happens. The kings are devoured by the heat of the oven. For that many kings to be overthrown in that many, uh, in that short a time span, um, there was just all this plotting and planning going on in the dark, waiting for the for the time to be right, for the the oven to blaze, um, for the bread to be you know ready to be you know cooked. Um, so it, it's all stoked up. So their burning hearts were cooking up evil, and the Lord was going to punish them for it. <clears throat> now our hearts can represent the oven, same oven. And, and, and even the same heat. But it, it doesn't have to be cooking up evil against the Lord. So we should ask ourselves the question this morning. What's cooking in my heart? What's cooking up in there? You know, is, is it something that I can talk about in the light? Is it something that God would want? If the heat of my heart got hotter, would it hurt anybody? Or would it bring glory to God? So do I have a burning heart for God and His work? Now last week I told you that the sure way to get to revival in your life is through repentance. And that's that's very, very true. So if we would come before God and we would confess that, hey, what's cooking up in, in my heart is not of Him or for Him. If we would do that in a genuine way, then... God will give us this loving embrace of forgiveness and a helping hand. He'll put the old fire out and he'll start a new fire. <laughs> that's his grace. And so if that's what needs to happen in your heart today, then don't do anything else before you do that. Let the Lord start the fire. Now, if you would say in your heart that what's going on in there is more like a flicker than it is a, a flame for God, then what you need to do is stoke that fire. And there's something you can do to do that. If we look back, uh, look forward into Luke 24, um, there's a couple of guys on a road. And they're going to Emmaus uh, from Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus, he joins them on that journey. But he doesn't reveal to them who he is. And so they're walking along. These two guys are talking about everything that had happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes up and he says, hey, what, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what are, you, what are you serious? You don't know? You're the only person that doesn't know what happened? And then they start to tell him all that had happened. And they say, you know, even our women, they went to the tomb and they came back with this crazy story that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he wasn't there. And he said, oh, you're, you're slow of heart to believe. He starts to explain to them from Moses all the way through the prophets how, how all of it was pointing to him. And so they get to uh, Emmaus and they uh, ask Jesus to stay with them because he acted like he was going to go on farther. So they sit down for dinner and then Jesus reveals himself to them and he vanishes. And they say to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? As he explained the scriptures to us. And then they do what people with burning hearts for Jesus do. They left their dinner and they went back to Jerusalem to tell their brothers that they had encountered the risen Christ. 
If you want to stoke your fire for God, go and get time with Jesus. Not rushed time. You know, not duty time. Not with an agenda. Not with a prayer list. Just with your Bible. Go and sit with him. Open the book. Start reading and wait for him to reveal himself to you. Tell him about your life. Tell him about the events that are going on. Bring to him the problems, the pain, the sickness, the burdens. Bring all of that to him. He is the best listener who ever listened. (laughs) Do all of that. Share with him your joys. And when you finish, you're going to find out that your heart is a little hotter than it was before you sat down to be with him. So you need to stoke your fire. Go and get with Jesus. Romans 12:11 says uh, this in the New International Reader's Version, which is the first time I've ever quoted from that translation. It says, never let the fire in your heart go out. Keep it alive. Serve the Lord. So what's cooking in the oven of your heart? What's cooking up in there? Is it on fire for God? Let Jesus stoke the fire. Let him stoke it and get busy serving the Lord. It'll transform this picture of an oven into something beautiful in your life. Verses 8 to 10, you get the next picture. God says, your love is like a cake. So 8 to 10. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. So this is really not a pretty picture. A a cake not turned is a half-baked cake. So think of a pancake. (laughs) Think of a pancake on a griddle there. If you don't flip it over, it's only going to cook on one side, and then you got a gooey mess. And so you got a, a, a pancake cooked on one side, gooey mess on the top. You're not going to serve that to anybody. And if you did, they wouldn't eat it, right? It's not good for anything. So if you don't cook it on both sides, you got trouble. Ephraim is mixing with the peoples of other nations, causing him to be weak in his faith. So they were trying to practice their religion, to Yahweh, but they were also trying to practice the religion of those that surrounded them, you know, the other gods. And so they let the world influence them instead of them influencing the world. And so God couldn't use Ephraim to be a light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they couldn't get any spiritual light from them because Israel looked just like them. So if you want somebody to believe in a God that they cannot see. You need to be able to have a faith strong enough that then when they look at you, that they know that God is real and really God. You need to have that strong of a faith. Now, he describes Ephraim here as, as with gray hair, you know. So he's saying, you're getting old, Ephraim. You don't know it. <laughs> you're coming to the end of your life, and you're not turning to me, and it's, it's, it's hurting You know, Christianity is not something that you can live out halfway. You you just can't do it. Here's the thing. We don't have just one pancake that we need to cook on both sides. We got a whole stack of them. 
We, we got a whole stack of pancakes that, that we need to cook on, on both sides. And if we don't do it, then we won't be good for God to use in his mission, and we won't be of any help to others who need to know the gospel and what Jesus has done for them and how much he, he loves them. Now, I can't cover the whole stack of, of cakes in this message, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover one, and then I'm going to mention a few others, and maybe to get you thinking about the, the stack that we have and if you're cooking it on both sides. All right, so here's the, here's the one I want to talk about. Grace and truth. <laughs> Grace and truth. Two sides of one of the cakes that we need to cook on both sides. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, a, a dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we're in process. You know, we're not like we were when we first met him. And we're not like we're going to be when we get to see him face to face. But we're, we're in process. So when we, when we believed in him, God did heart surgery on us. He took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, gave us the spirit, beats to follow him. Ezekiel 36, 26. So that's, that's the heart surgery. But from there, as we follow him, he's working on us. He's shaping us. He's molding us. As we worship, serve him, all those things, all the things we do, he's using that stuff to change who we are, to make us look like his son. Jesus to represent him. So that means we too are going to be full of grace and full of truth for people. Now, usually you're going to lean one way or the other. You know, you're going to be uh, more of a grace person or you're going to be more of a of a truth person. You'll, you'll lean one way or the other. So you got to think a, a grace person is going to go easy on sin. And so they'll, they'll be more apt to overlook it, just kind of brush it under the rug like it never really happened, you know. Uh, God is love, and because God is love, you, you just say, hey, God, forgive me, and you just go on about your way, and you're good. That's kind of an all-grace uh, person, no thought about repentance. A grace person will wear a cross, but they'll never talk about why the cross is needed, okay? Um, you know, God's love only gets amazing to people when they find out what he had to do and who he had to do it for? Sinful people. <laughs> he did that because he loved us. So we don't want to cheapen grace by not ever talking about truth and why it all had to happen in the first place. The other side of that pancake is all about truth. And truth people will carry a big hammer to hammer on the sin in everybody else's life except theirs. <laughs> okay, so the problem with that is the sinner gets hammered too. And so then you've got people who will try to work harder to not be a sinner or they'll just shrink and shrivel down into self-loathing because they cannot measure up. So truth people will use guilt and shame as a tool to get people to act, act right. And when a truth person is speaking truth, it just comes across as judgmental. It comes across as critical and condemning. It's just talking down to somebody. Truth people find it really hard to forgive. And you don't have any room to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, kick to the curb. See you later. It's all about law. And it leads people to dropping out of church or people working hard to stay in church. And neither of those 
is something that is an outcome that tells us that the gospel is good news. Neither of them. So, if we want to be like Jesus, we want to be full of grace, 100%, and full of truth, 100%. That's how we cook both sides of the pancake. Grace without truth is not biblical grace. And truth without grace is not biblical truth. So, if we give one without the other, we haven't flipped the pancake over and we're trying to serve it up ugly. Jesus is our example to follow Remember the woman that, he, that was caught in adultery, John chapter 8. You know, at the end of all that, after the stoners had all dropped their stones and left, he went up to the woman and he, and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he said, what? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's a beautiful pancake right there. I mean, I mean you know, he, he said, I, I forgive you. But he acknowledged her sin and then called her to a life of repentance. You know, don't do it anymore. So I'm not condemning you, but go live different. That's Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. Another example, remember Peter? You know, good old Peter? (laughs) The guy that denied Jesus three times after being told by the Savior of the world that he was going to do it and then proclaimed in front of all the disciples, I will die before I do it, that Peter? (laughs) Well, at the end of John... Uh, Peter has gone back to fishing because where do you go when you make a failure like that as a disciple? You go back to the old life. He's kicked himself to the curb. And remember what happened? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, crashes into his life and he calls him into fellowship and then he restores him into leadership over the church. How did he do that? He asked him a question. He said, what did he say? Do you love me? How many times did he say it? Three times. Why did he do it three times? Because of the denial three times. He was acknowledging his sin. He wasn't overlooking. He was saying, Peter, this is what you did, but I got work for you to do. Come back from the curb. Come on, let's get in the game. No condemnation, but a life of repentance. That's a beautiful pancake. Don't you want to go to get pancakes after this? <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. Full of grace and full of truth. And we need to have both to have a strong faith and be useful to God and others. Now, the stack is more than just one. You know, the stack's more than just one. We need, we need faith and we need works. You know, um, James chapter 2 tells us about faith and works. Uh, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And you can go read Jesus' prayer in John 17 to hear about how he prays for us to be that. Both sides of the pancake. We need to have a heart, a faith that's in our heart, but also a head faith. You know, in in Romans 10.9, it says, believe in your heart. And in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, we need to have an answer to defend the hope that we have within us. We need reasons for why we believe. We can't just say, oh, I believe it all. You know, that's not useful to anyone. People are going to have questions. We need to see ourselves as a saint and we need to see ourselves as a sinner. Jesus has taken our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. We are seen through that cross as righteous. We've been given his righteousness. But just like Paul, as you read the New Testament all along, boom, 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 boom. What did he say? I'm a sinner. I'm a, rum, I'm a crummy sinner. I am the worst of all sinners. As he grew in the Lord, he got worse. <laughs> and that brings humility. 
So that's two sides of that pancake. Now, there's, there's probably more, and you might be able to think of some. Um, but you know what? Growing in our faith is a full-time job that will take the rest of our life. And the thing is, we don't know how many gray hairs we got. But God knows. He, knows. he knows the span of our life. But what we do have is today. He's given us today. So my question to you is, is you, you got a pancake that you need to flip? You need to cook it on both sides. Which one might it be? Because there'll be some, for sure. So flip it. Verses 11 to 16. We come to this last image. Your your love is like a dove. Now, in these verses, it's actually uh, two images, but they kind of both speak the same thing. So see if you can pick out the other one. 11 to 16, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So Ephraim, verse 11 It's called a silly, senseless dove for running to Assyria and running over to Egypt for help. Now, remember that Ephraim is just another name for Israel in in Hosea. Um, So he's saying Israel is getting hammered. You know, they're getting hammered. Their kings are getting killed. Their enemies enemies are coming and they're taking their land and and they're seeing that they're in trouble. And and so uh, they're they're in danger of being conquered. So, So what do they do? They call a sacred assembly of the people and they say, put on sackcloth and ashes and pray to God that he would help us fast. No, they don't do that. They fly. They fly over to the nation that looks like it could help them. They fly this way and then they fly that way. They go to Assyria, they go to Egypt. Both of those were pagan nations and so they were bringing money to them. You know, to get their alliance, but they also had to give their allegiance to their gods to be able to do that. And so God's saying they're silly and they're senseless. In verses 12 and 13, he explains what's going to happen and why. He says, I'm going to stop all this nonsense, all this flying around, all this silly, senseless, you know, senselessness, all this nonsense. I'm going to throw my net over them like, you know, I would trap birds in the air. And why? Because they've strayed from me. They've rebelled against me. And he says, I would rescue them, but they just keep on sinning and lying about me. I would do it, but they don't don't turn to me. Think of all the times in the Bible there is a story of God fighting for his people. And all they have to do is ask him to, is, is turn to him and trust him. You didn't have to do anything. Just trust him and be saved by him. Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That goes back a ways in their history. In verses 14 to 16, God describes 
the requests that they're making, their rebellion and their ruin. He says they cry at night from their hearts, but not to God. They're crying out for something to eat, something to drink, but not crying out for God. And God says, I trained and strengthened their arms. That's a father-son relationship. He has trained his son Israel to grow up into a faithful man of God. But they've taken that training and that strength and they're using it as evil against him. And so he says, they look, at, they look everywhere but up. And then here's the other image. Uh, they're like a, a crooked bow, a treacherous bow in battle. You know, they used to shoot those arrows up. But he's like, this, this bow, it won't shoot up. It shoots everywhere else. It's dangerous. It's useless in battle. And their enemies are going to overtake them. Where do you run when trouble comes? Where do you run to? Do you look like a senseless, silly dove flying to this person and running to that person for help? Whoever looks like they can fix your problem. You know, we often hear the term arrow prayers, you know. (laughs) Whatever the situation is, we just like throw a quick prayer up. God, I need your help. Nothing wrong with those prayers. Do them a lot. I shoot lots of arrows. I mean, they're evidence, right? Evidence of faith. But those kinds of prayers rarely keep you from running this way and that. You know, it's like we're just adding God to the people that we're running to. They're valid prayers, but they don't tend to keep us just looking to him for help. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon was king then. And he had just finished dedicating the temple he built for God. I want you to listen to 2 Chronicles 7, 11 to 16. So Solomon finished the temple of the Lord, as well as the royal palace. He completed everything that he had planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. Then one night, the Lord appeared to Solomon and he said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for for making sacrifices. At times, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to me. Now, verse 14 in the middle of that's a common, a common verse that we use, you know, to call the church, call our nation to repentance and seeking God. Uh, in prayer, you know, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will turn, I will turn from heaven and heal, heal their land. You know, that prayer is a common prayer. And it's so, it's just too bad, right, that Israel didn't remember that. That they didn't remember that. Because that's what they needed to do to have God jump right back into their lives in Hosea, it's time, and fix everything that was going wrong. 
And God tells them exactly what they needed to do. He said, he's saying, you need to fly to me. You need to shoot your arrow upward when things look bad and seek my face and he will respond. That's what he wants us to do. Now, when I, when I read those verses, it says in other places about how God chose, chose a place for his name to be honored. And when I, when I read that, it always reminds me of this place. Because God chose this place to have his, his name honored. And it's just really, a, I love telling the story about how he did that uh, for us. Um, and when we come together and we seek his face and we pray, I believe he's, he's delighted and he's listening and he's hearing our prayers. But you know what? This is really not God's temple. You are God's temple. Believers are God's temple. You know, people who have been born again by the living God, who, who looked at, at the Savior and said, the Son of God came and he lived a life that I could not live and then he died my death and provided forgiveness for my sins and beat, beat death by rising from the grave and now I've got this hope. People who have done that, trusted their whole life to Jesus, have been given His Holy Spirit to live inside of them, to help them walk and follow Him, to help them expand the kingdom of God, to bring glory to God. Anything we do for the kingdom of God that is effective and productive is because the Holy Spirit is doing it through us. Everything. You know, in the First uh, Corinthians Uh, 3.16, Paul wrote, you are God's temple if God's spirit lives in you. You are God's temple. And so let me read again 2 Chronicles 7.16 with that in mind. You are God's temple. He said, for I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it and it is dear to my heart. When was the last time rain did not fall on your crops or the bugs showed up and ate the harvest or disease came and knocked you down off your feet? When was the last time that happened? Where did you run? Where did you run? Not not an arrow prayer. Where did you run? Humbling your heart before God, confessing your sins and the inability to follow faithfully and seeking his face. When was the last time that happened? When was the last time you said, I, gotta, I can't eat. I, I got to seek him with fasting because I need to tell him I need him more than I need food in this situation. It's how he is calling us to live. It's how we make this picture of a dove into something beautiful in our life. Craig Brian Larson, Uh, he is one of the editors at Christianity Today, and he shared this story on his blog about how God showed up on on the job of an everyday believer who had an impossible task. And this is what he wrote. He said, last night a woman in our church told a story of how God had given her success at, at work on this large, important project that she was doing for a big downtown bank in Chicago. She was a website architect. 
She was hired specifically to upgrade the entire site of the bank to interface with people who had disabilities. Everyone that she was working for told her, you you cannot do this. (laughs) You don't have the intelligence to get this done. You're going to fail. And she agreed. This was new territory. No one's ever gone here. Nobody knew how to do it. One of the technicians told her, hey, listen, I couldn't do a part of what they're asking you to do in six months. I couldn't do it in a year. And so she feared losing her job if she failed. She feared having to move with a a spot on her resume that, that was either blank or a bad reference. But she had this fierce conviction that she had a great God who was able to help her get this done and so she called out to him she called out to him all day long every single day she prayed fervently over every detail every web page every line of code every new functionality she literally wept and prayed and sought god with fasting she felt small she felt vulnerable but she just kept trusting crying out to him day after day telling her team what to do, writing code. Day after day, she received wisdom for one piece after another of the project, and it began to come together. Every day was a new discovery. Every day. Week after week, piece after piece, page, functionality, website, it all came together. Months passed. It's time to roll this thing out. 80 web pages of this website. Cutting-edge technology. The day they rolled it out, they found one bug, and they fixed it in 10 minutes. Everything else worked flawlessly. Now, if you've ever tried to program anything, (laughs) you know that's impossible. The Holy Spirit is an expert website architect. And that lady, she didn't run to the experts in her field to help her brainstorm about how to get this done. She ran to God. Every single day, hour by hour, line by line of code. And that's the kind of dove that we want to be. We want to fly to our God with our burdens, with our problems, with our trouble. We want to fly straight to him. We need to trust what he said in his word, that he is who he said he is. And that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Believer, you have been chosen to be a temple of the living God. You've been chosen to honor his name with your life. He is watching over you. You are dear to his heart. Fly like a dove. Right to him. It's how you turn it into a beautiful picture. Let's have our worship team come back up. So what's your love looking like this morning? you have a burning heart for God? What's cooking up in there? (laughs) Do you have some pancakes that need to be flipped over? You've got one side cooking, but the other side's still a gooey mess. Flip it over so you can have a strong faith. Be useful to God. Do you have a flight pattern that flies straight to God when trouble comes? Listen, be an oven that is on fire for God. Be a cake that's cooked on both sides. Be a dove that flies straight to our Father. You are being watched over. You are dearly loved. Let's stand.
and proclaim that and celebrate it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so well. We want to come before you today and ask for forgiveness for when our hearts have looked more like this chapter of Hosea than what you call us to. We thank you, God, that you reveal truth to us. But you don't kick us to the curb. Because of Jesus and what he's done, you pick us up. You dust us off. Point us in the right direction and say, come and walk with me. So Lord, help us to hear your leading voice today to be able to follow you in these areas or these places where we need to grow to be more like your son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being in our lives, for being within us. We pray you would fill us today to bear the fruit that is called for in this kingdom work that makes us stand out to our neighbors and our co-workers and our fellow students and friends. We pray that we would be fruitful this week in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.